Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Uh, if you have not already heard, uh, we begin a new teaching series this morning called Precious in His Sight which at its core is a series all about pursuing racial justice and racial reconciliation. Now, that said, I am aware that in the United States of America in the year 2021, saying that we are doing a series on race could put some people on high alert, potentially, regardless of which side of the political spectrum you happen to fall on. So I've told several of my pastor friends that we are doing a series all about race and racism and racial justice, and the most common response I have gotten from each of them is, I will pray for your email inbox, which to me is a discomforting experience to have them say that to me. It kind of feels like this weird like digital exorcism or something that I was not aware of, Uh, but that has been the most common response I've gotten for them. They apparently think that wading into this topic could be a tad controversial to some people. Uh, And I understand that, but let me just say right off the bat, uh, I do not think I'm going to need all that many prayers for my email inbox, just all my cards on the table. Uh, By and large, that is just not how you guys respond to teaching that we do here on Sundays. I don't generally get much hate mail in response to the things that we talk about here from stage. That's just not how you guys respond. Case in point, uh, this past summer, back in June, we did a three-week series actually on politics itself. Like that was the topic of the entire series. Three weeks on politics. I braced myself for the email backlash and would you guys like to know what happened? Absolutely nothing. Nothing happened. No hate mail, no argumentative critical emails. I got one email from one person in our church And that email was just someone saying, hey, this teaching was particularly convicting for me, and I just needed some help knowing how to process and repent and and work my way through it. Which just if you're wondering, if you just want to send your pastor an encouraging email, that's it right there. Like just, hey, I've just really been convicted by the Holy Spirit through the teaching of the Bible, and I would love your help on how to do that. Your pastors love getting those emails. Unfortunately for a lot of pastors, they don't get a ton of those emails, but they would love those emails. So that's the only feedback I got, because that's just not y'all's posture when it comes to even somewhat controversial topics like this one. For example, ever since we announced two weeks ago that we were going to teach on Precious in His Sight, pursuing racial justice together as a church family, all I have heard from any of you guys is that you are very excited about us doing this series. And so I wanted to acknowledge that. I wanted to thank you guys for that. And thank you for not sending me hateful, critical emails all the time. Apparently, that's a really common thing for a lot of pastors. That has never really been the case for me. As always, if you have concern about things that we're teaching, my door is always open at my office. I I say that hypothetically. Uh, My door is usually closed because uh, our offices are really cold. This is a very old building that does not heat well, uh, as you may have noticed. So usually my door is closed to trap the heat in for my space heater, but metaphorically, it's always open. Does that make sense? So you're always welcome to approach us about things like that. That's just not what I anticipate happening in this particular series. Now, all of that said, though, obviously, the tensions are high in our society right now when it comes to topics like the ones that we are going to discuss in this series. Almost anytime someone brings up something like race or racism, there can be a nervousness about what is going to be said, really regardless of which side of the political spectrum you're coming from. So as we get started, I'd love to just try to set some of that tension at ease. Uh, In the first service, for like the first 20 minutes of the teaching today, everybody was just scared to make any noise at all. So I I wanna just try from the beginning to set some of that tension to bed. So first, let me say this. Uh, This is not going to be a series about what the political right or the political left thinks about issues of race. 
That's not what we're doing here. Nor would that even make sense to do in a church context. That's not what we're doing in this series. I think one of the really unfortunate things about the current state of our society is that a lot of people have started viewing nearly everything in their life, everything in our society through their particular political lens. It seems like anytime anything happens in the world, so a a war, a tragedy, even a worldwide pandemic, we immediately just look to see what our politicians of choice have to say about the issue or what our party of choice has to say about the issue, and then we form our opinions solely based on that. Seems like that's a lot of what's happening in our society today. That's why we can't get on the same page about nearly anything in our society today. And I think that has also happened a lot when it comes to issues surrounding race and racism. Instead of thinking critically about those things or thinking biblically about those things, we far too often are taking our talking points from our party of choice, whatever that happens to be. But here's the thing, and if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. As followers of Jesus, we must understand that our primary filter is not what the left thinks, it's not what the right thinks, it's what the scriptures say. Do you get that? That's our filter. That's where we go to decide what we think about certain things. Not what our party says, not what our favorite politician says, but what the scriptures say. And so that's what I want to do with this series. If there's any of that in our midst, what I want to do, part of what I want to do in this series is rather than seeing everything, including race, through a political filter, I would love to try to flip that and help us see everything in life, including things like race and politics, through a Bible filter. Does that make sense? That's where I'm trying to go with all of this. That's where we're trying to go with this series. Now, the second thing I want to mention before we get started is that uh, neither I or anybody up here during this series is coming for you. Uh, Our goal is not to spend six weeks in this series making you all feel horrible about how you're all racist and need to do better. That's not our intention here. Now, as we work through this series, there will be correction to be gleaned, to be sure. There will be things that we need to think on and pray through and process through, and likely there will be some repentance that needs to be participated in for all of us. But that's just because we're looking at the scriptures together. Anytime you take an honest look at the scriptures, there is going to be correction and confrontation to be had. But that said, we are not planning on beating anybody up for six straight weeks in this series. Rather, we just want to unpack the scriptures and then let the chips fall where they may. Does that make sense? That's what we're going for through this particular series. Now, to do that today, I want us to take a bit of a tour from the front cover to the back cover of the Bible. The whole thing. I'm going to skip a few parts, but we're going to go mostly from the front cover to the back cover of the Bible. If this was your first time here, you may be making a run for the door soon. I promise I'll be done in 40-ish minutes. You guys know how it works here. So front cover to back cover of the Bible. And the reason I want to do that, the reason I want to cover everything from Genesis to Revelation on this is because I want to try and show you what I think is a deeply embedded pattern in the scriptures, something that we find repeated and emphasized from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You may have never picked up on it, or you may have never thought about it in these terms, but the simple fact, this is my thesis for this morning, the simple fact is that the entire narrative arc of the Bible bends towards racial reconciliation. The entire narrative arc of the Bible bends in that Direction. I want to try to prove that to you as we work through the scriptures today. Now, real quickly, before we get into Genesis 1, I know there's been some critique lately in our society about the term racial reconciliation. Um, sometimes when white people use that terminology, it can feel like it is asking black people to just sort of get over some of the atrocious things that have been done to them throughout the years specifically even by followers of Jesus, which is obviously a very silly expectation for people to have. Reconciliation is never possible until there is an honest accounting of wrongs in the relationship. That's how reconciliation works. That's true with any human relationship, so of course it's true with this conversation as well. 
So just for you to know, when I use the term racial reconciliation, I'm not using it in the sense that people of color in our country just need to get over some stuff so that we can all be reconciled. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying there needs to be an honest look, an honest pursuit of justice so that there can then be reconciliation as a result. Does that make sense? That's what we're shooting for. I want to try to show you some of that today from the scriptures from beginning to end. So this morning, we're going to start at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Now, as a fair warning, we're going to move fairly quickly from passage to passage this morning. If you consider yourself an expert-level Bible flipper and you want to go to each passage with us, you are welcome to do that. Uh, If you're newer to the Bible and that's overwhelming to you, we will also have the entirety of these passages up on the screen. So you can follow along up there or in your Bible, whatever works best for you. But before we read Genesis 1, let me just give you some context so you can understand what's happening. God, at this point in the story, in Genesis 1, is in the process of creating the world that we now inhabit. So the earth, the sky, the moon, the stars, the sea, the animals, all of that. He has created this beautiful habitat on planet earth, teeming with potential and possibility And what we're about to read is when he reaches the pinnacle of his creation process and creates human beings. That's where we pick up the story. Take a look with me, starting in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Stop right there. So here we read that God creates man, or or more literally in context, that might be translated humanity or humankind. God creates all humankind, quote, in his image, in God's own image. Now, that means that human beings are different from everything else in the story so far, right? Everything else that God has created. It did not say that the sun or the moon or the stars were made in God's image, It didn't say that the earth or the sky were made in God's image. It didn't even say the animals and the creatures were made in God's image. All of those things are beautiful and good and worthy of awe and wonder in their own right. But it very clearly makes the point that only human beings are made in God's image. Human beings are on an altogether different level than the rest of creation in terms of importance. So listen, practically speaking, I am sure that your Labradoodle is adorable. I mean, absolutely adorable. I love that you love your Labradoodle. I'm so glad you take care of your Labradoodle. Your Labradoodle is not made in the image of God. They're not a human being. You may put human clothes on them, but they are not a human being. And they're not on the same level of importance as a human being. Now, most of us inherently get this idea. Most of us just know in our spirit that human beings are more important than animals. We, we just get this. For instance, if you are married and there is a fire at your house tonight in the middle of the night and, and you get out of the house alive, but you're trying to figure out whether to go back in and get your spouse or get your labradoodle, most of us are not going to deliberate very long on that decision. And if you do, that's an issue in your own marriage that you need to figure out, okay? Most of us are not going to struggle with that decision because we just inherently know human beings more important than animals. We just get that. We inherently know that that's the case. And listen, that doesn't mean that animals aren't valuable. It doesn't mean they're not worth caring for. It just means they're not as valuable or as important as humans, okay? Biblically, the reason that most of us just inherently know that is that human beings are the only creatures made in the image of God. They're the only ones. Theologians call this the imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. Every single human being has the imago Dei within them. From the palest of white to the darkest of brown, 
every single person contains within them the image of God and therefore are inherently worthy of dignity and respect and just treatment because they are made in the image of God. Are you tracking with me on that? There are countless times in the scriptures where when the imago day on a particular person or group of people is denied them or they are oppressed in some way that denies the imago day, God takes that as an offense against him because the imago day is in each and every person. It is not a secondary issue, it is primary. And listen, this is why we have to start here to have any coherent understanding of the idea of justice in our world. We have to start here to get anywhere in talking about racial justice. Because if we are going to say that racism is wrong, which we are, there has to be a reason that it's wrong. Are you tracking with me? You can't just say it's wrong because it's wrong. That doesn't make any sense. Right now, there is a huge push in our society for racial justice, and I praise God for that. But when you hear people on the news or on social media, especially those of whom who are not followers of Jesus, when you hear them talk about pursuing justice and specifically racial justice, and you ask them why they're saying that, why they think it's important that we do that, the most common reason you will hear is, well, it's just the right thing to do. Well, it's just common sense that people should be treated equally. With all due respect to people who say that, that reason will not hold up. Because part of the problem right now is that there is what seems like a surprising number of people in our society for whom that is not common sense. For whom it doesn't just inherently make sense that we should treat all people equally. Literally the reason that white supremacists are white supremacists is because to them it's actually common sense that white people are superior to people of other races. That's what just makes sense to them. They just know that black people are less important, less valuable than white people are. And obviously they are wrong in believing that. But if that's what they believe, it just won't do to insist to them that racial equality is just the right thing to do. That's not gonna convince anybody. We can scream at the top of our lungs that it's just common sense to pursue justice and that won't change to, that to some people it is not common sense. So what we need instead is some type of foundation to stand on. We need some deeper reason that we are pursuing justice, some deeper reason that it matters that people of all races be treated equitably. And I would argue that the most solid footing for us to stand on in regards to doing that is right here in Genesis 1. It's the Imago Dei. The reality that each and every person and each and every ethnicity of persons are created in the image of God. That is the basis that the scriptures give us to stand on. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's head next to Genesis 18. If you're turning with us, Genesis chapter 18. So after the events that we just read about in Genesis 1... What happens is that God creates Adam and Eve in his image. He puts them in the Garden of Eden and he gives them everything around them to enjoy. Nothing is off limits to them in the garden except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, do not eat from this particular tree. So of course they do eat from the tree is what happens next. And from that moment, death and destruction floods into the human story. There is sin there is violence, there is oppression, there is injustice, there is superiority, inferiority, you name it. If it is bad and destructive for humanity or for the world at large, it now exists in some corner of society as a result of what happened in the garden. But here's what happens. Almost immediately as all of that takes place, God reveals his plan to rescue humanity from itself, to bless what is now cursed because of sin. God does not just leave humanity to fend for themselves in all of this. He formulates a plan to make things right. And what we're about to read in Genesis 18 is one of the places that summarizes that particular plan that God has for humanity. So take a look with me. Genesis 18, verses 17 and 18. The Lord said, 
Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So here's God's plan, to take one man and one nation and use that to reach and bless all the nations of the earth. Now, this is so important for you to get for the rest of our teaching this morning. Whenever you see the word nation or nations in the Bible, you need to know that that is not talking about nation states, okay? So when you and I hear the word nation, we usually envision a plot of land on a map surrounded by borders. That's what you and I think a nation is. So the U.S. is a nation. Mexico is a nation. Canada is a wonderful nation with much nicer people than sometimes are in the U.S. All of those are nation states, though. Are you tracking with me? They're they're plots of land on a map surrounded by borders. That's what we think nation means. You need to understand that when the biblical authors talk about nations, that's not what they mean. They don't mean plots of land on a map. What they mean is people and people groups. That's what they mean by nation. They mean most literally ethnicity. So specifically in the New Testament, the word translated as nation is actually the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicities. That is what they're talking about when they use that word. So listen, God is not in the business of blessing plots of land on a map. That's not how he works. He is in the business of blessing ethnicities of people on the earth. So God's plan from the very beginning is to reach and bless all the ethnicities on planet earth. Now notice how central that idea of ethnicities is to the plan that God has. It's not secondary, it's not an afterthought, it's right here from the very beginning. God will bless all peoples, all nations, all colors, all ethnicities through Abraham and his family. That's what God is up to because all nations and all colors are made in the image of God. All nations and all colors are a part of God's plan for the world. So to borrow some modern terminology, God is not colorblind. He's not colorblind, he's color aware. God made zero mistakes when he chose the various colors of our skin. God does not love you despite the color of your skin, he loves the color of your skin. That was not a mistake when he made you. And listen, anyone who wants to ignore the color of your skin, anyone who wants to try to talk past it and pretend like it doesn't exist at all, anyone who wants to say, hey, I don't see color in your life, they are thinking about it very differently than God does. Because God does not look past the color of our skin. He designed the color of our skin. God is not colorblind, he is color aware. Every single one of those colors are, to quote the old Sunday school song, precious in his sight. And therefore, God's rescue mission for the world necessarily includes each and every one of those colors that he made. So with that, let's hop over to the New Testament. Matthew 28, if you're turning with us. Matthew chapter 28. So in this story... If you're unfamiliar with sort of the narrative of the New Testament, what has just happened is that Jesus has been executed on the cross, he has then risen from the grave, and he is about to depart for good to go and be with the Father. And what we're about to read in Matthew 28 are the final instructions that Jesus gives his disciples before he does all of that. Now, I want you to think about that situation for just a second from your own perspective. If you spent a large portion of your life with a specific group of people and you were about to go and never see them again, you were about to leave and never see those people ever again, wouldn't you sweat just a little bit what you said as your parting words to them? Like, wouldn't you only want to say the most essential, the most necessary, the most meaningful thing to them as you go? Okay, that's the situation Jesus is in, and here is what he chooses to say in that situation. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. He says, Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of what are those next two words? All nations, all ethnos, all tribes, all colors of people. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the command that Jesus gives the disciples is to go therefore and make disciples of all ethnicities, all colors. Now, It could be easy to miss the provocative nature of what Jesus just said in those words. Keep in mind that when Jesus says this, he is talking primarily to a group of 11 Jewish guys, some of them with very ethnocentric understandings of the world at the time. And yet, the thing that he wants to make sure they hear before he leaves planet Earth is go to every nation, every ethnicity, every group of people, every color that there is, and make disciples of those people. Invite them into my kingdom. Invite them into my family. That's the thing that Jesus chooses to leave his disciples with before he goes to be with the Father. Jesus is letting his disciples know that his kingdom is not about their people or their color or their culture. It is about all peoples and all colors and all cultures. That's what the kingdom of God is to be about. Now, for clarity on this, just in case you are white in the room and you are thinking in response to that, oh, that's how all of them became a part of the kingdom of God. No, This is how you became a part of the kingdom of God. If you are white, this is how you became a part of the kingdom of God. I hope we realize that if this idea of going to all nations was not in the Bible, no white person would ever be sitting in a church in Knoxville, Tennessee, studying the Bible. We would not be here. There are tons of different ethnicities represented in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. Hardly any of them would be considered Caucasian by our definition today. So listen, this is what makes, if I could just rant for a second, if one thing gets me an email, it might be this. If I could rant for a second, this is what makes so-called white Christian nationalism so utterly moronic to believe Because if it were not for people of color taking Jesus' commands seriously, there would be no such thing as a white Christian. Do you see how silly that is to believe? It's so silly to me that people think Christianity is a white man's religion. That does not make sense historically or geographically. Makes no sense at all. But because people of color in the days of Jesus took obedience to Jesus' commands seriously, you and I, the white people sitting in the room, now have the opportunity to sit here and participate in the joy of being in God's family. How incredible is that? How unbelievable is it? What do we owe to people of color throughout the years that saw to it that they obeyed Jesus in such a way for us to get a relationship with him? That's a beautiful thing to realize about our faith. And it's deeply embedded in the pages of the Bible. And in return, we are called now to pick up that mantle. God wants all of his disciples then and now to go to all people and all ethnicities and all colors and tell them about the good news of Jesus such that God's kingdom becomes a place for all people and all ethnicities and all colors to enjoy the presence and the relationship that we get through the gospel. So on that note, I want us to look at two more passages together before we're done, both of them from the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn there, we'll start in Revelation chapter 5. One of my favorite things about today's teaching is it's just like four different mini-sermons. It's my favorite thing ever. Um, Revelation 5. So we're going to look at two different passages here, but before we do, the book of Revelation, if you're newer to the Bible or haven't read it before, uh, the book of Revelation is, how should we say, an intense book to read. Um, It is an intense book. 
Uh, most of it focuses around visions of what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, in, in other words, the day and time when Jesus returns to earth to set all things right and return everything to how it should be. That's what the book of Revelation is at least largely about. Now, the passage we're about to read speaks of one vision of that day when Jesus has made all things new, and it tells us what the elders and the creatures around God's throne are saying on that particular day, specifically what they're singing. So take a look with me, verse 9 of chapter 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's a vision of the new heavens and the new earth and what it's going to be like on that day. So here, notice this it explicitly connects everything that happened on the cross to Jesus' desire to rescue people from every ethnicity into his family. Did you see that? It's in the same sentence in the passage. What Jesus did on the cross was at least in large part about rescuing people, ransoming people from every color, every ethnicity, every tribe, every tongue, and making them a part of God's family. That in large part is what the cross was about. It was about forming those people together from all their different backgrounds into one new family a community that represents and glorifies God in a multitude of different ways. That is what the cross was meant to accomplish. And I want you to know this is actually a theme just in the book of Revelation alone. It actually comes up multiple times, this idea does. So take a look with me a couple chapters later at Revelation chapter 7, where it says this, we'll start in verse 9 again. After this, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who is Jesus. So what Jesus wanted to happen, what he was aiming to accomplish from eternity past and what he brought to fruition through the cross finally happens in its fullness. At the end of all things, when it's all said and done, there are people from every nation, every ethnicity, every people group, every language, and they've all gathered around the throne of God and they're singing out this song to God saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. That's the song that they're proclaiming on that day. If we wanted to shorten that song just a little bit, we might put it like this, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus' desire that he would rule and reign over a group of people made of all different colors comes, through, comes true. Jesus wins. That's where the story of the Bible ends. So listen, when you join yourself to that multi-ethnic cause with Jesus, you are on the winning side of history. There's a lot of talk about being on the right side or the wrong side of history. Here's the winning side of history. A group of people from every tongue, every tribe, every ethnicity, every color gathered around the throne of God singing, Jesus wins. What Jesus wanted is what happens. And on the other hand... To find yourself in opposition to Jesus' desire for a multi-ethnic family in the kingdom of God is to oppose the victorious kingdom of God, which just for clarity makes you not victorious. I want to make sure we're all clear on that. And listen, by, by saying those who find themselves in opposition to, to Jesus' multi-ethnic kingdom family. I, I don't just mean those who outright obviously oppose it. There, there are some people who make their opposition to Jesus' multi-ethnic family very obvious. Those are the people that are in news headlines, okay? Those are the white supremacists, the KKK, the alt-right, all of that. 
Those people make their opposition to these things very obvious. It's very easy to sniff out what they are doing in regards to this stuff. But listen, there are also groups of people that make their opposition to racial harmony more subtle. It's more low-key. It flies under the radar a little bit, at least to most white people that hear it. These are the people who say things like, well, I'm not a racist, but whatever the next thing is. I'm not a racist, I I just don't think racism is that big of a deal. I'm not a racist, I just kind of think white people ought to keep to themselves and black people ought to keep to themselves. I'm not a racist, I'm just uncomfortable around people of different races. All of these and things like them are just subtle ways of saying the thing that was of central importance to Jesus is not of importance to me. That's what we're saying. I know we don't think we're saying that. That is what we're saying. When we refuse to acknowledge and join ourselves to something that the king of the world is doing, that means we are in opposition to him. And that's where repentance is required if we want to be a part of the kingdom of God. So hopefully at this point, you're beginning to see what I mean when I say the entire narrative arc of the Bible bends towards racial reconciliation. There were literally like six more passages at least that I wanted to cover, but I thought you guys and your plans for lunch would not enjoy that. So there's way more. I just tried to cover the major movements in the story beginning to end. But this is what God has been about from the very start. This is absolutely central to God's plan for the world. I I know that maybe even some of us that grew up in the church maybe haven't heard it put in exactly those terms, but this is undeniable from the pages of Scripture. It's undeniable from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, at nearly every point in the story, God's heart is for people of all nations, all ethnos, all colors to be represented and reconciled and reunited in his coming kingdom. That's what he's trying to accomplish. So how might we sum all of this up? If we were to just put it in a sentence a statement that we could remember from all of these things in the scriptures, how would we put it? I think we could put it like this. Racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. Racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. So first, let me just ask, um, do you guys know what I mean by that, that term, a gospel issue? So there are some people in the American church who, when you start talking about something like race or racism, they will respond with something along the lines of, hey, let's not get caught up in all of that stuff. Those aren't gospel issues. Let's just preach the gospel. Let's just teach the Bible. And the race stuff will sort of sort itself out if we just do that. If we just focus on the Bible, if we just focus on the gospel, the rest will kind of figure itself out. Their take, those people's take, is that talking about race or racism just causes more division, more strife, more disagreement, and so it's better that we just not talk about those things and just stick to what we consider to be gospel issues. Now, let me just start off by saying I don't think I'm in love with that dichotomy that there are certain things that are gospel issues and there are certain things that are not. Because my understanding as a follower of Jesus has always been that when you become a follower of Jesus, the gospel now applies to all of your life, every bit of it. There are not aspects of our life that we get to hold behind our back and exclude from Jesus's coming kingdom and how he would want us to live. If we are followers of Jesus, what we are saying is that the gospel now applies to every single facet of our life, every interaction, every relationship, every social issue, all of that gets informed and shaped and guided by the gospel message. So I don't think it works then to say that something like race or something like racism is not a gospel issue. I think if you follow Jesus, everything is now a gospel issue. But if I were just to assume the best about people who say that, if I were just to give them all the benefit of the doubt and assume that that they believe what I just said too and they mean something else when they say it's not a gospel issue, I would bring up at least a couple of things in response. One 
is that those who say that racism is not a gospel issue tend to be a little bit inconsistent with that reasoning. Because many of the same people who think that we shouldn't speak explicitly about racism as followers of Jesus do think that we should speak explicitly about other justice issues, uh, things like abortion, for instance. They think that when it comes to things like that, Christians should be consistently vocal and consistently outspoken in speaking against it and those who support it and those who legislate it. But let me just ask, why wouldn't the same reasoning apply to abortion? If it's true that racism is not a gospel issue and we shouldn't talk about it specifically because it causes more division, why would that not also be true of how we talk about things like abortion? Why is one of those things a gospel issue that we must speak out about and the other one is a, go- a non-gospel issue that we shouldn't speak about? So, so I think there's some inconsistency there. If all human beings are made in the image of God, that encompasses everything from the unborn human child on. So, so why is one of those worth mentioning explicitly and the other one isn't? The other one is one that we need to keep quiet about. It seems like as followers of Jesus, when the Imago Dei is being denied anyone, no matter their stage of development, no matter their color, we as the people of God speak up, right? Because we realize that that is an insult, not just on that person, but on the very character of God itself. So when the Imago Dei is denied someone, it does not matter how old they are or what color they are or their level of education or any of that. We speak up because that is a gospel issue. But the other more important problem with with believing that race and racism are not gospel issues is the Bible itself. Because the Bible actually presents race and racism and racial reconciliation as gospel issues. We just read Revelation 5 where it explicitly says that what God was doing in sending Jesus to the cross was that he was gathering people to himself from every tongue, every nation, and every tribe. That sounds pretty core to the message of the gospel if you ask me. But there are other places in the Bible where we also see this very clearly. I think one of the clearest ones, if you understand the context of the passage, is Galatians chapter 2. So I would highly encourage you this week sometime, if you have the opportunity, go read Galatians 2 and understand some of the context that's going on with the book. And and there's this one example in chapter 2 about how Peter, who was a Jewish leader of the early church, has begun refusing to eat with Gentile Christians, people of other ethnicities from him. He's he's begun refusing to eat meals with them in the context of that church. Now, he is guilty, that means, of racial discrimination against other people groups. That's what's happening there. He's, He's guilty of racial discrimination against the Gentiles. Now, Paul, who is another leader of the early church, he gets wind of this happening with Peter. He gets word that Peter is refusing to eat with these people, and he decides that he has to go rebuke Peter for his racism. He has to go solve this problem. Now, in doing so, Paul is writing the book of Galatians. He's talking about this situation, and it says that he felt he had to go engage Peter on this particular issue because his conduct was, quote, out of step with the gospel. That's the phrase he uses. He, he doesn't say it was the secondary theological issue that I needed Peter to sort out in his life. He didn't say it's this really minor character thing that totally isn't a big deal. I just felt like maybe I should pull him aside and talk to him about it. He said that Peter's conduct in this racial discrimination, that that conduct revealed a lack of belief and trust on some level in the gospel message itself. It was out of step with the gospel. That to me sounds like gospel reconciliation is a gospel issue and racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. So based on those passages and plenty of others that I could walk you through, it seems apparent to me that that is true. Racial reconciliation is indeed a gospel issue. It's not over here to the side. It's not secondary or tertiary. It is a fundamental application of the gospel itself. 
God sent Jesus so that he could reconcile every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity to himself. That's what God was doing in sending Jesus. And I think we dishonor that message when we pretend that one part of it is not that important to us. When Jesus went to the cross, he had all people in mind. When his blood was spilled, it was spilled for people of every nation, tongue, and tribe. And as gospel people, we should be thinking in precisely the same way. So we want to help with all of that throughout this series. We know this is a complex issue. We know there's plenty to talk about and wrestle through. We've got six weeks that we're going to cover this stuff as a church family together in this series. So we're going to cover a lot of ground by the time it's all said and done. Let me just give you a few practical things to be looking towards as we go into the rest of the series. Just some things for you to be aware of. Uh, first, you will be hearing a lot less from me in this series than you normally do. I love this stuff. I love teaching this stuff. I love helping us see and process this stuff as a church family. But to me, this felt like a really important time for us to lift up the voices of people of color for our church to hear from. I think it's important in any facet of our life. We should be doing that as gospel people. But specifically in how we approach the teaching of this series, that felt really important to me. So I'll only be teaching this week and one other week in the entire series. For the rest of the series, the rest of the weeks, you'll be hearing from Marcus, one of our pastors who is black. Uh, Jeff, who is Asian. You'll be hearing from uh, Anthony Frederick, a friend of mine who's a pastor in South Carolina. He's black. He's come and talked from us before. I think maybe two or three times in the past he's come and shared with us on a variety of things that he'll be teaching. So my hope is that even in how we think about the teaching of this series and who does the teaching, we can model as a church family the, the willingness and the desire to seek out and listen to the voices of people of color. Which leads me to the next thing, and which is that I realize right now, looking around this room, that we are a pretty white church. By and large, we are a mostly white church. And there are at least a couple reasons for that. Uh, one is because of our surroundings. Uh, Knoxville, in general, if you've done the research, you know that Knoxville uh, is way less diverse than a lot of places in our country. But some of that, too, is that I think we still have a lot of growing to do in being a welcoming place for people of color. We have grown a lot in it since we began as a church. Like, even though it may not seem like there are many people of color represented now, I can assure you it is, it is very different from what it was when we started as a church. So we still want to grow in that. We've grown in it some. We want to continue to grow a lot more. And listen, it's, it's not just growing in it for diversity's sake. That, that, to me, is not a supreme value. To me, the goal, the intention, the reason we want to grow in that is because our world needs an example of it and because the gospel of the kingdom demands it. That's why we want to do that. It's not just for sake of numbers. So on that note, one other practical thing I wanted to mention to you. Uh, I know that because we are still growing in that, some of our life groups might only have one person of color or maybe a few people of color in each of those groups. And as many of you guys know, most of our life groups spend time discussing the teachings each week when they meet together, which could make for some sort of awkward conversations if we're not prepared for them, right? So what I wanted to do as we wrap up today is just give you three quick pointers uh, for how to navigate those moments together. If you're, planning, if you're in a life group, if you're planning on being in a life group, discussing this series together, a few pointers just kind of as we move forward. First, prepare in advance to actively participate in discussion. Prepare in advance to actively participate in discussion. So some of us, just if we were completely honest, um, don't think much about the teaching between when we leave here on Sundays and when we show up to life group. I know none of you guys would ever do that, but some people have trouble thinking about the teaching between when they leave here on Sunday and when they show up to life group. Now, that's probably a different teaching for another day to address why that is and what we should do about it. I'm not going to go into all of that. But I'll just say, particularly for a series like this one, 
if you take that approach where you don't think much at all about the teaching after we leave here before life group, that will be a particularly unhelpful approach for you to take. And here's why. If there are people of color in your group and they are met with complete silence when we discuss the things that we're going to discuss in this series, that to them is going to communicate that these issues are not important to you. So I would encourage you, if you are white, to not respond with silence. Now, you don't have to say something crazy smart or insightful. You don't have to say something beautiful or eloquent. But do not be silent. As our black brothers and sisters have often pointed out, especially here lately, sometimes silence can be deafening. So if you show up and you're just unprepared and you haven't even considered any of this stuff by the time you show up to life group, that is going to communicate that these things do not matter to you and they are not important to you, whether or not that's what you intend to communicate. So I would just encourage you to prepare in advance to participate. Open up your notes. If you took notes, open up your notes. If you didn't take notes, go back and listen to it again. Pop in the podcast as you're heading down the road. Listen to what was said. Process it. Have something that you are processing and wrestling through and come ready to discuss when it comes to life group time. Second one, leave the political discussions at home. Leave the political discussions at home. As I mentioned at the very beginning of this teaching, this is not a series about what the political right or the political left happens to think about race or racism or justice. It is a series about what the Bible teaches about those topics and how we as followers of Jesus are called to respond to those things. That's what we're discussing. So your life group leaders will be given full permission to, if they feel like they need to, if they feel like the conversation is turning in an overly political direction, to just say, hey, we're not here to talk about that. And, and if you want to, on your own time, go grab a drink or a meal with somebody to argue about politics, you are welcome to do that on your own time. Good luck finding somebody to do that with, but you are welcome to do that on your own time. That's not what our life group discussions are for. And I'll just add this, uh, just like we mentioned earlier, if your immediate inclination when discussing issues of race and racism is to bring up what your political party thinks or, th or, or acts on in regards to these topics, I think that might reveal that you've been a little more discipled by your political party than you have by the gospel of Jesus. Because the, the quickest thing off of our tongue as followers of Jesus should be, here's what the word of God says. Here's what the Spirit has been teaching me and convicting me of. Here, here's the things that I care about because the Scriptures demand that I care about them. If your quickest talking point is, well, here's what I heard my favorite politician say. I think that reveals where your primary discipleship is coming from. And that's an opportunity to grow and that's an opportunity to repent and that's an opportunity to be formed more and more into the kingdom of Jesus and Jesus' own image. Believe the politics at home. Third, and this is the last one, then we'll be done. Third, this one might be the most important of all three. Do not expect the people of color in your group to be the spokespersons for all people of color. Don't expect them to be the spokespeople. Understand that, that being one of the only or the only person of color in a room full of white people can be a very uncomfortable experience for a whole lot of people. And, and certainly even more so can be that way when we're discussing issues of race and racism. So uh, don't say things in your group discussion like, what do black people think about blank? And ask the black person in your group. They're not called to speak for all black people. They're welcome to speak for themselves. D don't say things like, well, why do y'all blank? Why would they need to answer that question? <laughs> so so don't, don't make them the spokesperson. Don't make them your reference for all things black culture or any of that. Uh, let them, if they want to, speak for themselves. I would say don't even expect them to say anything. Don't, don't force them to say things in a group setting. If they want to say something, if they offer up something, be ready to listen and listen well. And think about what was said, but don't expect them to represent every person of color. That just doesn't make sense. You would not want that. 
So hopefully with all of this, this is our goal, this is our purpose with the series, all of these practicals aside, our hope is that if we can put some thought and some intentionality into our life group discussions in this series, that we can all move together as God's people towards God's heart for every tongue, every tribe, every people, every ethnicity. That's our goal with all of this. That's what we're trying to do. This is not about some in vogue political issue that is popular to care about right now. I think that's one of the biggest problems right now is that even followers of Jesus have only started caring about racial justice because they saw it on Twitter and it seems like a cool thing to do. That's not what we're trying to do. If for no other reason, then that motivation will wear out really quick. As soon as social media culture moves on to something else, you will also move on. What we care about is being people who are grounded in the scriptures and care about the things that God cares about. And whether you've ever heard it put this way before, one of the things that God cares tremendously about that is so central to the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel itself, is racial reconciliation, is seeing to it that on that day in the future there are people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, and every color gathered around his throne. That's the direction that God is headed. I'm saying let's join him in that. I'd love it if you would pray with me to that end. Father, um, I know this can be heavy stuff. Especially for a lot of us, if we grew up in an environment that, uh, that trained us or discipled us to think a certain way about race, um, gave us false narratives, um, false foundations, um, I know it can feel like there is, uh, there's just a lot of undoing and unlearning to happen. So God, um, just as we begin, as we kick off this series, I want to ask that you would, um, if necessary, that you would do some, um, some tearing down of those false foundations, false beliefs, false narratives. Um, maybe our parents taught us to think a certain way about race or justice or maybe... Um, Maybe the news station that we tend to watch teaches us to think a certain way about it. So God, maybe a, a lot of what it looks like is just sitting down by ourselves or with a community of Jesus followers and opening the scriptures and just saying, um, God, would you help me unlearn and would you help me learn? Maybe that's where some of us need to start. It's just having our minds renewed in the truth of the gospel. God, for others of us, um, there is a deep-seated uh, resistance to the things that we're going to talk about in this series. There's, a, um, there's just an inherent disagreement or disagreeability about it where we don't want to hear what is said because we don't have categories for it and it doesn't fit in our pre-existing categories. Um, so God, if that's us, I, I, I pray that you would just speak to us by your spirit and you would just show us that if we have wrong beliefs and if we have wrong foundations, I pray that you would speak to us that we have nothing to lose the only things we lose by realigning ourselves with your scriptures and your narrative about humanity is we lose all the things that were just clouding our view to begin with. So God, if that's us, I pray that we would listen. I pray that we would have the courage and the willingness to consider what you're gonna say to us throughout this series. And then maybe for yet others of us, maybe, maybe this is deeply embedded in how we already think. We're already about racial justice. We're already about racial reconciliation. Those are core tenets and core beliefs and core pursuits of our life. And so God, maybe what we need is just a reminder. We just need courage for the journey. We just need our, uh, our tank filled up so that we can continue to work towards those things and continue to pursue those things around us. And maybe there's still some of us who are... Um, 
we care about racial justice, we care about these things, but we mainly care about them because it seems cool to care about them. And I just want to ask that we would that we resituate our motivation and our purpose and our hope from being in what other people care about at the time to being what you care about as our Father. God, your desire is to see every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every color represented around the throne of God and that those people would be knitted together into a family that shows off your glory to the world. So God, I just wanna ask that you would help us get there, that you would help us pursue that, that you would show us what practically needs to change about how we think, how we feel, how we act to pursue what you are all about to work more and more towards that day, that reality. God, we grieve the brokenness that comes from racism and prejudice and racial bias in our world. God, we grieve that that is the way the world is. We know that is not your intention for the world and you are doing something about it and many times you want to do something about it through us. We are your hands and feet. We are called to pursue your vision for what human flourishing looks like. And God, this is a part of that conversation. So God, would you help give us the courage, the desire to pursue that? We ask this in your name. Amen.